When I celebrate, they'll celebrate with me. Celebrate what? Celebrate the winning of the $99,000 answer. That's what. <laughs> it won't be long now, sweetheart. We'll be living on Park Avenue. And will you see how different this furniture looks when it's in a Park Avenue apartment? I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'm never getting to Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And we have quite the lineup today. What TV sitcom trope are we talking about, Amy? Well, today we are going to really dive into that wisdom because we are going on a game show. Going on a game show. That's right. The Honeymooners, Season 1, Episode 18, The $99,000 Answer. Mr. Belvedere, Season 6, Episode 2, Brain Busters. Caroline in the City, Season 3, Episode 14, Caroline and the Quiz Show. And Spin City, Season 4, Episode 7 or 8, depending on where you look, How to Bury a Millionaire. Right. Now, if you're listening to this going, hey, you forgot about that episode of that show I like where they went on a game show, that's because there are many, many, many TV episodes about characters going on game shows. This was one of our most prolific tropes. We quickly discovered several subtropes. Jeopardy alone has at least four or five uh, episodes of different shows where a character went on that. There are several that are dating type game shows like singled out in the 90s or the dating game from the 70s or whatever. So what we decided to focus on first... Family Feud as well. Right. Family Feud is a big one. Now, obviously, there's some corporate synergy, I think, at work behind some of these. I'm sure... It wouldn't be shocking to find out that some of the TV shows that went on Jeopardy were on the same channel, but we're focusing on non-Jeopardy quiz shows on right. those sort of standard test your knowledge, win your money type shows. Yes. And what's interesting about this is that the the game shows that they go on, the like quiz show type game shows that they go on really sort of track with popular quiz shows of the time. So we get the Honeymooners and the $99,000 Answer, which is a takeoff of a popular game show at the time, the $64,000 Question. We get Spin City going on How to Be a Millionaire, which was a huge hit at that time with Regis Philbin. You get Caroline in the City going on like an NPR type yeah. Um, wait, wait, don't tell me kind of quiz show. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that uh, maybe one of the reasons why this was such a popular trope is because for as long as there has been mass market entertainment, there has been some form of game show or quiz show or something. Right. But let's back up for a second. And let me ask you, have you ever been on a game show? Oh, man, have I? I don't. I. Ugh. Based on your answer to this, you would not excel on this type of <laughs> high-pressure situation. Don't ask me questions and expect immediate answers. Um, I, I feel like only in 
like school or something like that. Like I didn't really do, I don't even remember doing like a quiz bowl or anything. I'm going to have to say no. It's perfectly all right to not have been on a game show. Most people haven't. I haven't. The only people I know that I can think of offhand, we had family friends that the two kids went on Double Dare. God, that was such a dream. Yes, that was the dream. If you were a kid in the 90s going on Double Dare, answering some... The 80s? Yeah, 80s, early 90s, I guess, answering some sort of down-the-middle questions and then having to jump around in a milk-like substance, as they <laughs> called it. Lots uh, of slime. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. that was what we all aspire to. So... Uh, Let's get into The Honeymooners. The Honeymooners. So The Honeymooners is a little bit tricky if you're out there trying to find the episodes and trying to see what's going on because The Honeymooners originated on a variety show that was called The Cavalcade of Stars. And then that show sort of transitioned into the Jackie Gleason show, which then transitioned in that same time slot into The Honeymooners. And so The Honeymooners was a sketch on The Cavalcade of Stars and then was a sketch on The Jackie Gleason show and then was its own show for one season, 39 episodes. And then there was like a Jackie Gleason variety hour that ran for the next like 20 years. And it was consistently revived as, as a sketch on Jackie Gleason's different variety shows throughout the 60s, uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah, and the Honeymooners definitely echoes on in the culture. We oh, talk yeah. about sometimes how these things live on past their actual life on the air, but not forever. So we talk about how... You know, we have friends that are younger than us. And for them, something like the Brady Bunch, where we grew up and it was already passe, but we still knew about it. And now for them, it's like just barely on the edge of their consciousness. Or when we were kids, something like the Three Stooges or the Marx Brothers, like those, that was already yesterday's news before our time. But we knew of it. And when somebody made those little faces and noises and stuff, we understood, oh, they're doing a Three Stooges thing. Whereas yeah. kids now... I don't think they, they have any idea who Three Stooges or Marx Brothers are. It's just too many generations removed. And if they do, it's because their parents have sort of said something about it and they've seen a, like something on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. Right. But my point with all this is that The Honeymooners is one of those things that we were already on like the second or third generation references to it. You know, right. Fred Flintstone is a reference to The Honeymooners. You the know, whole, it, yeah, the whole Flintstones, each character is based off of right. so the it's, characters it's in this. Lived on in that whole bang zoom to the moon thing. All of that is is still in the culture, but I would argue it, it's on its way out. And the honeymooners, you know, the Cedric, the entertainer movie version, notwithstanding. Uh I forgot about that. It is on the verge of just sort of being forgotten or being really in the, you know, sort of like ancient history world of TV. Yeah. Well, so when I was watching this, I forgot about Family Guy, Peter Griffin, being a little bit of like 
Jackie Gleason's character in this, Ralph Cramden, and a little bit of Archie Bunker. Like, I I forgot that there was that Ralph Cramden influence on the family guy. So if you're thinking about young people now, they know family guy, they would probably see this and be like, oh, yeah, he's like Peter Griffin. Right. Well, to that point, my feeling when watching this was that even though this is not the oldest show we've watched, because we watched an episode of I Love Lucy season one, which actually predates this by several years, but this felt like the first TV show ever. This felt like they were still getting people used to the idea that there were not tiny people in this box in their living room. It just <laughs> seemed so primitive and old-timey. We talked about with the Andy Griffith show and stuff about how they used to narrate the credits along with the the visuals. I feel like this is even further in that direction where it didn't even occur to them to put images on the screen that corresponded to the show. <laughs> like they're just showing pictures of fireworks and stuff. Like it just seems so bare bones. Like there's this thing called a television and we're going to have people acting out little stories like they're in a family and we're just getting started <laughs> with that. Well, and I wonder if some of that is because it is a sketch and so there's in this episode we do get two sets but normally there's just the one set there's just the apartment of the Cramdens and throughout the series there's a couple uh, episodes where we get to go to the Norton's apartment Trixie and Ed Norton their neighbors and uh, friends but in this episode we get the $99,000 answer set. Right. So there are two sets, but it very much similarly to the Andy Griffith show where you were like three acts, three scenes, three Definitely. sets. That's it. This is one set and also the game show. So like you know, yeah. two sets, <clears throat> but most everything's happening in the apartment and in one room in front of the front door. Like it has that feeling of a very cramped New York City apartment. And this was the first time that we had working class Americans portrayed on TV as work, like as working class Americans, not as up and coming. Yeah. And that set is fascinating to me because you can just see all the things in the first 10 seconds of that scene where Alice walks in, you can see all of the things that they hadn't figured out yet, like putting some pictures on the walls like it doesn't look like an apartment it's it like they weren't even going for that kind of realism it was right. still like watching a play where it's like oh well if we put a little table here in a window we'll have the suggestion of an apartment and that's all we need and you know? then later on they move the table out of the way and they have a piano there and it's yeah. that same very small space she comes home she calls out the window hey Trixie I'm home come downstairs she come, you know her friend comes down they talk smack about Ralph and Ed and off they go. But yes, it's very small, very cramped. I mean, like I said, it does give you the feeling of being in a tiny New York City apartment. So in that way, it works. Yeah, that's but funny I though. I don't right? know that they're going for that. Yeah, it looked to me like a stage with, you know, the little accoutrements to suggest uh, a New York City apartment. Because again, they just hadn't even thought of like, well, there would be pictures on the walls, there would be furniture, there's not just this open space 
there's no blocking the way there is in future sitcoms where you watch an episode of Seinfeld, they walk in, they're messing around with the refrigerator, someone plops down on the couch and starts reading a magazine while they're talking. Here, they're just standing there, just talking, yeah. you know, like it, it's just so stagey. Well, and the other thing that they didn't feel a need to do after that long introduction with random pictures and they were announcing the cast with the little voiceover, you know, Jack and Gleason as Ralph Cramden. Yeah. Uh, after that, they didn't feel the need to actually start the show in the home of the Honeymooners yes. or with any of the cast on stage. It was the host of the $99,000 answer and a, an extra, like a random guest star who was a guest on the quiz show before Ralph got up. Yeah, that was very interesting that it starts without context, because like you said, this is very much with that three acts, three sets, you know, there's not going to be any cutting. It also made me think, was this aired live? Because... It could have been. like It could have been. And I wondered about that because later on in the scene where they're about to start playing the piano and Alice and, and Ralph are having an argument, as they normally do, Alice coughs yes. in the middle of her line Definitely. Uh, while she's talking to her mother, I think. She coughs like as she's speaking to her mother. And then Ralph comes home. And as he's opening the door, she turns her head to the side and coughs again in like a moment of yes. no lines while he's coming into applause. So I wondered the same thing if this was filmed and aired live. Yeah, it could just be that in general, you see that kind of stuff with older shows, they're not as polished and they let things go. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I wondered if that had to do with the structure that you're talking about where we can't do, let's start in the apartment and then dolly into the TV and then cut to the game show in progress so we understand. Well, and like we're saying, the set is so small there was no place to cut away. You know what I mean? I guess you could do like a close-up on somebody's face if you needed to have a cut there. But we get a whole bunch of like the classic honeymooner zingers. So the premise of this episode is Ralph Cramden has gotten selected, is, has been selected to go on this game show, the $99,000 Answer, which is a takeoff of the $64,000 Question, super popular game show at the time. He is on, and he's only on for like the last 30 seconds of the show. He's very nervous, and all he gets to do is pick his category, and then time is called and that he's going to come back the next week. So he has a whole week to study for the category that he picked. And the category he picked is popular songs. But he's comically nervous when he goes yes. on the show. It is, again, you're seeing the remnants of theater acting with all of these characterizations. His whole thing is just, you know, you can tell that he's doing this weird sideways smile if you're 200 feet away from him. You know, they're still playing to the back rows. I think the whole art of television acting hadn't been developed yet. And he's so nervous, he describes his occupation as bribing the dross because he, he can't remember that he drives a bus. He's debilitatingly 
you know, apprehensive about being on TV. Yeah, he's very, very nervous, which is so different from his character. Normally, he is, you know, very blustering and, you know, to the moon, Alice and all this other stuff, always given as good as he can get with his friends and neighbors. But in this instance, he is terrified and is playing that for all the laughs that he can get. He picks his category. You know, that part of the of the episode is now over. And then we get the next scene where he's in the apartment with Alice. Well, he's standing outside the apartment after the show has aired because he wants all of his friends and neighbors to see him. And so he's standing under a streetlight and Alice is laughing with Ed Norton's wife, Trixie, about how, you know, he's standing out there in the dark. Nobody's going to see him. It's it's nighttime. Like, he's being ridiculous. He comes upstairs. He's all annoyed because nobody has recognized him or congratulated him for being on the show. And Alice tells him, hey, you know, Ed was, Norton was down at the bar with, or the bowling alley with all your friends watching it. So they're all excited. And Trixie was just here. And she said, you were the biggest thing on TV, which is the first of many fat jokes we're going to get in all of these episodes. There's this weird through line of anytime someone is doing a good job on television, the people in their lives decide to tear them down by calling them fat. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of humor in this that is different than comedy now. I took a note <laughs> that uh, it's funny how shaking your fist at your wife doesn't get laughs the way it used to. You know, his <laughs> bang, zoom, he says multiple times yeah. in this episode. And it's funny, the joke in that, like his whole expression, it's it's like he's almost crying. Like the humor comes from the fact that he knows he can't beat up his wife. And that's what's like driving him crazy. If only I could hit you, Alice. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we've already established the to the moon, Alice, as a funny line because now he like this sketch has been going on for so long. It's been airing for so many years that now we're already in new iterations of it. Like he's not even saying to the moon anymore. He's just going with a little, you know, funny side eye to the camera saying bang zoom. And the audience is uproarious. Yeah. It's already reached. Did I do that territory? It's expected. It's understood. And again, these are early days of TV and catchphrases. And so, yeah, at this time, you say something like that two or three times per episode, right? Why not? You yeah, know, they, you it's, play it for all it's worth. It's wild to think that Urkel shows restraint with his use of catchphrases compared to <laughs> uh, Ralph Crampton. But like, yeah, like you said, the whole middle chunk of the show is devoted to him preparing right. for his appearance on the game show. And this is another example of this thing that I love. We saw it in our All in the Family episode where in the old days, you didn't have Spotify. You had a piano and somebody who knew how to sight read music. Yes. And I love that idea of just like, how, how does that song go again? Oh, I'll show you. Just, just grab that piano. Let's get the sheet music and, and let's go. And yeah, his buddy, Norton, is able to come over and sort of quiz him. And so instead of just going like, uh, oh, what song is this? da do 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 He comes over with a stack of sheet music so he can sit down at the piano and play different songs because Ralph's category of expertise is popular music. Popular music. So before the piano even arrives... Before Norton comes downstairs and starts playing, before any of this practicing happens, he, uh, Ralph Cramden, is 
home with Alice after the first episode and is telling her how he's going to go all the way to the $99,000 question. He's not, the way that the game show works is the first question is $100, the second question is $600, and you can stop at any time. And then it, you know, it goes on from there and doubles and doubles until you get to the $99,000 question or answer. And he has said, he's like, look, I chose a category that I know I can win on. I'm going to go all the way to the end. And she's like, I will be happy if you just get to the $600 question and stop. And he's all offended, like that's calling him stupid. And she's like, no, it's that $600 is a lot of money for us. And I'll be happy with that. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And he's, and he goes on and on. He's all upset. And she gets rather than just being like whatever he's just going on like Edith Bunker would she Alice leans in and doubles down and is like oh you think you're so smart then why don't you you know why don't you spell anti-disestablishmentarianism and he's like I didn't pick spelling for that reason nobody can spell that well that's a shout out to the actual show the $64,000 question a young girl a 12 year old girl from Baltimore spelled anti-disestablishmentarianism correct on the $64,000 question and it was for like $8,000 or something and she went on she ended up winning $16,000 on the episode it was a big deal she was a black girl and so it ended up being this big deal in her teen years and she put the money away in a college fund and then tried for the rest of her life to hide from the fame because so much of the feedback was this awe that a young black girl could spell. So it always had this sort of racial tinge to it. But they shout that popular thing in popular culture out in this episode. Yeah, but so he doesn't choose spelling. He chooses music. I don't know if that's a thing in other episodes or they're making it up just for this, but he apparently has this savant-like knowledge of music and is just so wild. One of the ways that he's been testing himself is having the little Italian lady that lives down the hall or something come and sing him Italian songs. Sing him opera. And he knows them. And he knows he's like 1869. That was what amazed me. He's identifying every song by title, artist and year. And one of them is in the 1890s. And it actually just got me thinking like, wow, okay, so if this show is on in the 50s and he's talking about music from the 1890s, that's not unlike you and me talking about the Beatles. That's or right. Something, you know, like it's before their time by a generation or two. But it is crazy to think that these characters are not that far removed from the 19th freaking century. Yeah, well, it would have been music that their parents listened to, just as the Beatles is music our parents listened to. Yeah, but like you said, he's determined to go all the way on this show. I mean, this is something they still do this with game shows, the the who wants to be a millionaire and stuff, making you do that that devil's calculation, that weird wager of are you going to play it safe or, or keep going. He goes on and says, I'd like to make a statement. Right? <laughs> right. He says, the host is like, you you don't need to decide now. You can strategize as you go. And he says, nope, I'm calling my shot. I'm going all the way. And this is 
I don't know if this is necessarily the moral of every one of these shows, but this is obviously going to be a through line in a lot of game show type things. The pride goeth before a fall type story. Absolutely. Right? And and I think that just comes from the same reason they have these cringy fat jokes in there is that you can't let anybody be good at anything in any of the sitcoms, right? Like if somebody is good at something, they're either going to get their come up come comeuppance or you got to take them down a peg. And generally it's both things right. that have to happen. And vice versa. A lot of times the sort of schlubby idiot character ends up being the one who secretly sort of knows what's up. So in this case, we forgot to mention that while his buddy is helping him study by playing all the songs on the piano to quiz him, he needs to start every one of his little renditions with playing a few bars of Swanee River. Right. So he says, this is how I warm up my fingers. And so he plays da 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 and doesn't go any farther. Da 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 like changes it into a little intro and then plays the song that he needs Ralph to play. And so we get this funny little comedy bit at the at the at the piano where Ralph is yelling at him for playing that song and he's like, oh, it's just my warm up. And so then we get the next song thinking, well, he's already warmed up. He's just going to be able to play. No, da, 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 and then plays some other song. So he does this over and over again, playing this like Swanee River intro. And I wrote in my notes when it was happening, I was like, something's going to go down with Swanee River. Like Ralph Cramp, there's going to be some question about Swanee River and he's not going to know it. And guess what? Yeah, so we get a pretty straightforward arc here. Ralph went around telling everybody that he was the bee's knees and he was going to win the whole thing. And, and he was take very impressive during his practicing. Yeah, but again, you want to err on the side of humility. I think that's a lesson in general sitcoms love to teach us. And so he gets the very first question wrong because he was too busy yelling at, at Norton to, you know, internalize that one warm-up song and think that maybe that's something I should know too. Right. So he yells at Norton for playing the Swanee River warm-up song, never makes any mention that he knows what that song is. And they play the song for the $100 question, the very first question, and the host turns to Ralph and says, who was the you know composer of Swanee River? And he's like pulling all the faces and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't do this one after all that time. This is why you watch the show, right? You got to think this is the basic appeal is right. to watch this guy you know, watch sort of, Jackie Gleason pull faces. Yeah, That's what he's melt famous down for. And, you know, not know what to do and fall on his face. So he doesn't even win a hundred dollars because he can't even get the question right. And they usher him off and he's like, all, you know, he's calling out every, every, they're like, you know, have a nice day. And he's like, have a nice day. So-and-so 1922. Like he's everything yeah. people say is the name of a song and he's calling it all out and is ushered off stage. And that's the end of the episode. All right. So let's jump forward several decades to Mr. Belvedere. Mr. Belvedere, season six, episode two, Brain Busters. We have a family of five. The dad is Bob Euchre, and he's a sports writer. And the mom at the beginning of the series is a law student and is now 
uh, an attorney or a law clerk of some kind. And the three kids, one older teenager, one younger teenager, and one uh, wily prankster middle schooler, Wesley. And then you've got their live-in sort of housekeeper, Manny, Mr. Belvedere. And Mr. Belvedere is has lived a very full life, right? He was a valet for Winston Churchill. He was, you know, some like some type of servant to a queen. He has he's traveled the world British and cultured and stuff like that. This is one of several 80s shows about a family with some sort of live in servant. I'm just starting to think as we watch all these shows from the 50s to the present day, the 80s seems to be the point where you're far from the innovation of the early times like we were just talking about when we're, you know, getting getting used to this exciting new medium of, of television and we haven't quite gotten the revitalization that we'll get with Seinfeld and The Office and all of that stuff. And I'm just thinking back to all of these shows in the 80s that were like, yeah, what if we have a family and, eh, you know, maybe right. it's, Tony Danza as the tough guy housekeeper. Maybe it's an alien. Maybe it's the daughter is a robot. Maybe it's just, you know, I feel like you start with something like Family Ties, where it's like, oh, we're going to have a straightforward show about a family with the fun little twist of the parents are kind of aging hippies. And so now that it's the 80s, the teenager is going to be a Reagan era conservative. And let's see about that. And it's all kind of grounded and smart. And they're, they just start piling these family sitcoms on top of each other. And some of them are like growing pains where there isn't really a gimmick at all. Some of them are like the different strokes things where it's, oh, if we adopt somebody or some sort of mismatch. And then sometimes it's ALF where it's a crazy fantastical gimmick. But there's so many family sitcoms. They're so samey. The comedy is unimaginative a lot of the times. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I did not love Mr. Belvedere. No, I was bored in Mr. Belvedere. And I think some of the things that you're talking about are are true once you get past like season two or season three of these shows. Even Family Ties, right? I think we're in like season two of our rewatch of Family Ties now, and we've started noticing they're not doing the great storylines that they were doing at the beginning of season one. They are a ratings juggernaut and people are watching and they've started to just go really boring and tropey and it's not as interesting anymore. And with this Mr. Belvedere episode, we're in the last season. All of the kids are older now. Like when the show started, there was the older teenager and the the middle girl was in middle school and the younger boy was in elementary school. Now you've got the older teenager very clearly in his 20s. Why is he still at home? Like, you know, he doesn't have anything to do in this episode. This whole episode is about the younger kid who used to be this wily, fun little prankster. Mr. Belvedere makes a comment about like, oh, him ending up in juvie because he was always like, mischievous and we get almost none of that mischievous in this episode 
episode, save for the very end, which isn't even that mischievous. It's what anybody would do in that moment. And so there's just, it's, it's very like they ran out of storylines after a few seasons with these shows. And because it was back in the day where, you know, you were getting the 19 share, you were getting the 20 share because there were only three channels, you know, you were going to keep these things on the air and just keep cranking out the same storylines that they've been cranking out since the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And I just think this cast, I wrote down... Every family member is the weak link on this show. Like the dad is roughly 97 years old. He seems like five times older than every other adult in the show. Which he is. Bob Euchre was, he was a sportscaster and he was famous for that. And then, yeah, you know. He's in Major League around this time, the movie. Right. That was a big hit. And the same thing. So because of his sports background. But think about, uh, what's his name? Craig Kilborn. Kind of the same thing. Like was an ESPN guy and then moved into the early version of The Daily Show and did comedy. So, you know, that it was this uh, announcer to sure. actor pipeline. And he's very American. And so you can understand how he'd be a good foil to Belvedere. But nonetheless, these kids are uniformly bland. The older son, especially, I was just like, why... Like, was he the only guy that auditioned for this show? Like, sorry, but he's just not the least bit interesting or compelling. Mr. Belvedere himself is a total troll. I mean, again, you you talk about that sort of mean-spirited humor in the, you know, in the basically for, for all time until like the last decade or so. Every scene ends with him making some snide remark about one of the kids and then he does the same little eye-roll sneer before he he's like an animal, like a bird or something that can only sort of turn right and has the same like maneuver every time. He'll like get up, say his little quip, roll his eyes and then sort of bank to the right and leave the room or something. He does it every time. And, and, you know, again, I think this is just going back to they are stuck, right? This is, it's the last season. We're beyond when the show was was palatable. Like this show also had some really good episodes. This show aired from 1985 to 1990. The episode we watched, which is called Brain Busters, aired in 1989. But this show had an HIV AIDS episode in the time when people were not talking about it. They did a story that paralleled the Ryan White story, which was Ryan White was a, a young, uh, a young middle schooler. He was a hemophiliac and he he contracted HIV AIDS through a blood transfusion. And his story was this, uh, when we were kids, uh, this sort of sounding board of like, look, you don't have to be gay to get AIDS. It can affect lots of people. And and they did an episode where a classmate of Wesley's had that same Ryan White story and dealt with all of the, is it okay to touch him? Is it okay to hug him? All of those fears that people had at the time. And so it's not that Mr. Belvedere, like we're hating on Mr. Belvedere really, really hard, but I just want to be clear that there were episodes of this show 
that were good. And there were episodes of this show where Mr. Belvedere, even though he would make fun of the kids and he always like universally hates the dad, even though he would make fun of the kids, they, he had a good relationship with the kids and none of that is present anymore in this episode. Sure. And I just want to go on the record as saying, I have not seen this HIV AIDS episode. I am not co-signing on the fact that it's good just because they addressed a serious topic. <laughs> Okay, if it turns enough. out to be horrible, it's even worse that they made a cheesy uh, sitcom episode about something that is gravely important. But <laughs> yeah, this particular episode is about them. Uh, the, the whole family is sort of obsessed with this game show. They show them it's one of these TV deals where, you know, you can't see the show itself. You see them reacting to it. And this fictitious game show Brain Busters moves at quite a clip. Like, they they have Belvedere walk into the living room while the other characters are watching the TV show, and it's just like, who invented the atomic partilizer? What was Christopher Columbus's third boat's name? Like, they're just rattling off questions like five or six per minute. You're just going like, what are they? Like, 700 questions per episode on this show? Like, where is the, the fanfare and showmanship on this game show? And it was, um, I mean, it is like a, a quiz bowl. It was a, a father-son team or like a, an adult and a youngster team paired against an adult and a youngster team. And, you know, that's the premise of the show. So Wesley has submitted himself and his dad to be on the show. So the next scene is they go down to the studio to have their um, like, like tryout yeah. practice in front of camera kind of thing. They're doing sort of a test run and it doesn't work because the dad makes the same mistake that Zach Morris makes in the Saved by the Bell academic bowl where he answers every question before the guy finishes asking it. He's too much, uh, you know, he's chomping on the bit too much. And so they keep getting everything wrong because he doesn't let him finish the questions. And right. so the little Korean family that they're competing against win, win the game. Well, and it wasn't even a, a win, right? Because this was just a practice. Yeah. So Wesley says forget this dad like you suck because you you know you you are too quick on the buzzer i'm calling in a ringer mr belvedere is going to be my adult and you know and the reason that this is all palatable within the like universe of this episode is that that was a tryout kind of like a test run thing and the camera and the host didn't like the dad yeah. but they liked wesley so they want him on the show so they allow him to like have pick a different partner so that they can go be on the show and compete against this same father-son team yeah, they specifically get the feedback of the son is fine, you got to get a new dad. And so back at the house, Wesley's request to Belvedere to come on the show with him gets applause from the audience. Everyone is like, yeah, all right, this is it. We're going to see Belvedere now taking to the game show. And so we get several scenes of them preparing and Belvedere sort of working Wesley to the bone, he's having him memorize the state capitals in Hebrew, which I thought was funny. You know, they have that little joke of like, but I've memorized all the state capitals, but do you know them in Hebrew? That was a good bit, I thought. Belvedere has a pretty amazing song to memorize the periodic table. 
I don't, I, I, too much time has passed now for me to perform it, but he's going like beryllium, metronium, carbon, and potassium. (laughs) That's pretty spot on. He was having a good time with, uh, with that. The, so again, not much to, to see in this episode. So I have a question for you because one of the things I noticed while they were rehearsing for or practicing for the game show, every sitcom, Family Matters, Step by Step, every sitcom has the two-way swinging door between the living room and the kitchen. Have you ever had one of those? Have you ever seen a house with one of those? What's up with the two-way swinging door in every television, family, TV show? I always noticed that in shows... I have never encountered it in real life, but I always just figured it was for the ease of the actors, you know, so that they don't have to open and close it themselves. It just has some sort of tension on it that they can just kind of bust in the room. They can be holding something or whatever, and it'll just kind of go wah, 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 and and settle down on its own. It's an innovation that came from the kind of thing that we noticed with the Honeymooners episode, which was when she walks in, and it might be six seconds that it takes her to put down her stuff and go over there. It feels like an eternity. You know, they talk about on the SNL Five Timers Club when they have to put on the jacket, that's part of the bit, how it's so hard for them to put on a jacket on live television because it's a little bit awkward and it requires both hands. And there's something about when you're watching something on TV or in a movie, your eye is just so attuned to everything is intentional and every second has been prepared and edited. And so, yeah, it seems ridiculous to say we don't have time for somebody to close that door, but it's true. It would be awkward and weird if you had a character walk into a living room and then take the half a second it takes to turn around and make sure the door is closed and whatever they need to just everything be keep moving. It's got to flow. Yeah. So... Um, that was my big aha in this episode was that, hey, that two-way swinging door seems to appear in lots of sitcoms. So now we go back to the studio for the actual live quiz show for the Brain Busters game show. And as predicted, Mr. Belvedere, brilliant, is answering every single question. He's waiting for the question to be read all the way through. Yeah. And even when Wesley rings in, Belvedere is answering for him. Yeah, he's outshining Wesley and just sort of hogging the spotlight. I don't like the thing of sizing people up and trying to figure out if they're gay or not, because I think that's based in stereotypes and is generally not a helpful thing in our society. But I became kind of obsessed with is... Mr. Belvedere, is this actor like a very flamboyantly gay man that's sort of hiding in plain sight as this hoity-toity, snooty British character? Like his mannerisms and stuff just started to give me that vibe of like, oh, is this what this guy did at this time when, you know, there were only so many avenues for that sort of personality and he decided to filter it all through this sort of snooty housekeeper guy. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, well, so you're touching on a classic trope that um, has been memorialized in song in the musical Legally Blonde, gay or European. Yeah, I guess. 
Um, and you can be both. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the uh, end of that song. This man is gay and European. It's more. It's all his. Like I said, his little eye rolls and stuff. But anyway. What made me incredulous about this next plot twist is that they are all fans of this show, right? The family watches this show religiously, and yet they are somehow surprised to find out that there's a segment of the show where Mr. Belvedere, a la Double Dare, is going to go sit in like a slime booth or something and have a bunch of crap dumped on him based on whether or not Wesley can get the right answers to things. <laughs> so they're on the game show and the host, who's been sort of a dick throughout, like the host was not nice to the dad and was sort of snide with all the guests in the tryout and then just sort of continues to be weird during the actual episode, although not as snarky as he was in the tryout scene. He says, hey, well, now we have our goofy part, uh, our goofy round, which we've never done before, but we have for this show, we have the goofy round. So if you get something wrong, something goofy happens to you. And Wesley, this is when we see the mischievous side of Wesley. He looks, he's like, so let me get this right. If I get a question wrong, something funny weird will yeah, happen gross gross will happen to mr belvedere and he's grinning and he's making the eyes and so we all know he's gonna get every question wrong now just so things can happen to mr belvedere because he had been stealing his thunder yeah so we get an egg on his face and then we get oatmeal and then they pour chocolate all over him and then they smash a pie in his face and he looks terrifying when i tell you this does, it It goes so far past like, ha ha, you got something on your face. You look funny. The first couple things they dump on him are like that. But eventually it's like many pounds worth of liquid chocolate dumped all over him, like completely submerging him. And then they dump some more stuff on him and he looks absolutely nightmarish. And they must live near the studio because I made a note. The last scene in the show is Belvedere comes back in the house covered in all of this stuff, ostensibly having driven in a car. It doesn't stand up without, to even that kind of scrutiny. Without Don't toweling even off at all. <laughs> the brain cells trying to figure out how he got from the studio home. It makes no sense. They would, of course, <laughs> have to hose him down immediately. They wouldn't even let him walk two feet away from where he was standing in that studio. Because he was be so like, drippy yeah. with stuff don't move let us hose you down take off your clothes yeah um but that's not the very last scene because the very last scene is a convention i forgot about we have similar to doogie hauser the belvedere diary entry where he sits down right. at his little writing desk and takes out his little ledger and uh writes writes his little nuggets of wisdom about the episode he just experienced yes and that is because the premise of the show is based on on the uh, character that was created for a 1947 novel called Belvedere, which
which was then adapted into a movie called Sitting Pretty in 1948. And it's all in diary entry form. So it's him recounting his life. There have been many movies and attempted shows over the decades because this has been, you know, an IP since the 40s that they've tried to like recreate this. And Mr. Belvedere, this actor, um, the actor's name is Christopher Hewitt. His very last appearance on television was on the television show Ned and Stacy in the episode Saved by the Belvedere. That is funny. Just the idea of referring to Mr. Belvedere as IP is just hilarious to me. Like, are we going to get the gritty reboot of (laughs) Belvedere? You know, are we going to get the start of the Belvedere cinematic universe where he hangs out with Jeffrey from The Fresh Prince? No, the gritty reboot of Mr. Belvedere is like um, like the imitation game movie where they tell the Alan Turing story about him having to be in the closet and everything that's yeah. the gritty reboot well also uh just ev- everything is a prequel now right everything is like oh what did alfred the butler do before he you know took care of bruce wayne and so this is perfect for that we know from the incredibly ridiculous theme song sequence that he has lived this storied life so yeah give us give us belvedere the early years uh give belvedere us, when he was working in the taj yeah, mahal young lynn belvedere uh yeah writes itself okay moving on to caroline in the city so caroline in the city this is season three episode 14 caroline and the quiz show this is another one of these damn shows like sex in the city or sex and the city caroline Mm -hmm. in the city caroline and the city and in this one the actual name is caroline in the city and then the episodes are Caroline and the something. Yeah. Well, Why do they got, do this to us? Why? She got to it first before before Sarah Jessica Parker. But yeah, Caroline in the City is one that whenever it, it comes up now, I always have that feeling of like, oh yeah, that. You know, it's not one that has a huge legacy where you see it all the time in reruns and stuff. But I think it was very well liked. And it's just so interesting because it's a sitcom built around Leah Thompson, who has a very interesting role in your life if you were a boy in the 80s and early 90s, I guess. (laughs) I was going to say, or a girl. I mean, I get that there's like this sort of she was very attractive in Back to the Future, but I loved her in Back to the Future just because she was pretty and went to the prom, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah, she just had a certain thing, mostly from Back to the Future. She was in a handful of other movies. She's in this movie, Casual Sex. She was in the movie Howard Howard the Duck, Duck. which was kind of a debacle in its day, but now is sort of a a well-liked curiosity. But yeah, she had this sort of girl-next-door vibe. I honestly don't know if I really have an opinion one way or the other as an actor. She was good, but I don't know. It's like she, at the end of the day, she didn't have a ton to do in those movies. You know, maybe in the first Back to the Future, I think that's that's a pretty substantial role for her. But then in the rest of them, she doesn't do that much. And she just... She occupies this interesting space where she didn't go on to be a Julia Roberts or have an amazing movie career. She didn't flame out in any sort of 
remarkable way. She's just she's just one of those people that for a handful of years was like really just really had a certain something. And then a few years later had Caroline in the city and then I don't know. Yeah, I think she's Meg Ryan if she didn't get When Harry Met Sally. Like, she has a very sort of similar kind of look, uh, a similar sort of vibe to her, girl next door, a, a little bit neurotic and, oh, you know, ex, you know, excitable, but yet also very... Uh, professional and get you know she plays in Caroline in the City she's a a comic strip artist and creator and she's successful and she has a nice little group of friends this show was in the NBC must-see TV block on Thursday night it aired between Seinfeld and ER this was like plum time slot they leaned i mean they that was given to her they were like this is a movie star who has deigned to do tv in the time when that didn't happen and she was in between jerry seinfeld and the juggernaut that is seinfeld and george clooney on er i mean they had faith in her that she could carry this show yeah it wasn't normal in those days to just have movie stars showing up as the lead in sitcoms. And yeah, it's it's hard to think of what the analogy now would be. But just think of, you know, if you had somebody who is in hugely popular, successful movies in their 20s, a few years go by, and then they show up, uh, you know, in their 30s as the lead of a sitcom, it, it was very intriguing. And so yeah, she's a comic book artist. So her partner, what does he do? So Richard is her colorist. Okay. So she is the creator, author, artist, and then he does the coloring. Okay. So that's your main sort of home base for this show is her sort of home studio with this partner of hers. I figured a colorist or an inker or some such thing. It's got these cool animated establishing shots whenever they want to show you where they are, like every sitcom does. They have a sort of squiggle vision drawing instead of a, a photograph or, you know, live footage. And yeah, most of the, it, it, you get the sense that this was the crux of the show is her and this partner of hers sort of. I guess if you want to be generous, say trading friendly barbs, um, you know, I'd say it's more like he is undermining her and everyone she knows at every turn. Uh, he is? I think so. He talk about Belvedere being a troll. This guy was like, all he does is sit there and look up from his work to say shitty, mean things to like burst the bubble of anyone who ever says anything. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, wow. That just like blew my mind. You're right. He has the same sort of sensibility of I'm going to make fun of all your friends and I'm going to give you shit. But we're in season three, like midway through season three of this the Caroline and Richard storyline is a will they won't they for the entire run of the series so this series starts and she has broken up with Dell her boyfriend and throughout that first season, she hires Richard to be her colorist. We find out that Richard is uh, like has a crush on her and she doesn't know. And then towards the end of that first season, she's getting back together with this guy, Dell, and they're going to get engaged. And so there's all this like, you know, 
back and forth. There's like a letter that he leaves, that, that Richard leaves, and then Annie, the best friend, finds it. And so I remember this show as being so annoying because it was very clear that Caroline and Richard needed to be together and they both just kept dating other people even though they would trade back and forth as to who liked who during the season i think at this point in the series he is married to that woman julia that he's with julia knows from a previous season that caroline has feelings for richard and because Caroline left a message on her and on their answering machine that Julia heard and then deleted. So the whole thing in this in this episode is the best friend Annie is dating a guy who's a piano player who's named Seth Rodetsky. He's named after an actual real person here in New York City that is a vocal coach and piano player and Broadway elite in, in these ways. And this man in the show is named after him, and he is the piano player for his parents' NPR-style quiz show, radio quiz show called Nothing Trivial, which is um, aired out of like a college radio station. And the best friend Annie is dating this guy, and Caroline and Annie go to see the show to support her boyfriend and Caroline's answering all the questions in the audience. And so Annie's like, Hey, you should be on this show. The, uh, Seth Rudetsky, the character's dad in the show sees Caroline is a big fan of the comic strip and is like, Oh my goodness, come and be on our show. We want a celebrity. Yeah. This is something that happens to her a lot. You get the sense as she goes through life, whenever she says who she is, People are like, oh, my God, like Caroline in the city, which is just a funny, you know, I guess they they still have comic strips now, but it's there's just something a little old timey about that, that she's sort of a celebrity, but not because people don't know what she looks like. But yeah, this is different from the others in that it's a radio show instead of a TV show. And she doesn't have the pride aspect going into it the way Ralph Crampton does. She has been traumatized because as a kid, we get this all in flashbacks, she froze up during a spelling bee. And it kind of made me think, as I was considering the whole trope in general of the game shows, how, yeah, a game show is a way that you put somebody under pressure and sort of put them on the spot and you get to see a character, you know, have to have to be under pressure and be nervous and stuff. And also in general, it's one of the rare times where you can put somebody as an adult into a situation that you associate more with kids. You know, when right. we're kids, we have to do shit like this all the time, spelling bees and sports games, and we have to take tests and we have to, you put have to on, be in front of people. Yeah, you have to put on little skits and shows and do recitals for the orchestra. And so, you, you know, yeah, every weekend you're playing at the baseball game in front of everyone, you know, and their parents and stuff. And as an adult, 
for most of us, those things peter out unless we particularly want them. Yeah, you have to seek them out as an adult if you want to be on a game show or be in the public eye or, you know, be involved in something that generally has public speaking. For the most part, as a grown up, if you don't like that, you can avoid it. Exactly. So that just sort of drove that home to me that like, oh, yeah, this is something that a game show sort of represents is putting somebody under the microscope the way we do with kids all the time. And so Caroline has stage fright, basically. She's very erudite. She knows lots of stuff. But she says, I'm going to be too nervous to ever go on a game show. Right. And so she tries to beg off doing it. But I think... Unfortunately, the game show part of this plot, like of this episode, is it's it's not really there for the game show of it all. Like I think the main storyline in this show has to do more with Annie and the boyfriend. Annie, by the way, the woman who plays Annie, her name's uh, like Amy Peets or something like that. She looks like a cross between Marissa Tomei and Daphne from Frasier. That's funny. I was going to say throw in a little Hathaway in there. Oh, uh, yeah. She does have a little Hathaway. she got Anne those Hathaway. very dark eyes. Her story is a little cartoony. It's funny how... This is a perfect example of something where you can do this in any sitcom and you can choose your tone, you know? So going out with somebody whose parents are overbearing and who is close with their parents in a way that you think is a little uncomfortable or inappropriate is a perfectly real thing that happens, but you choose when you're making a show like this how to portray it. And I would give this... This is like a 7 out of 10 on the goofiness scale, right? right? It's not total craziness, but it's pretty broad the way this is characterized, especially by the end. We have parents cutting up food for the guy who's, like you said, this sort of cosmopolitan, sophisticated guy, but he has this cartoonishly close relationship with his parents. Right. And so you see Annie at the beginning kind of saying, oh, I don't know if I'm interested in him. And Caroline's like, well, well, how long have you been dating? And she's like, six weeks. Oh, right. I forgot about the six week freak out. It's just me. Talks herself out of it. And then they, you know, they go out to dinner and the mom cuts up his steak and she's like that's really weird also why are they on this date with us but then he smooths it over again by inviting her to go away for the weekend to vermont and then annie finds out the parents are going away to vermont for the weekend with them as well so it's like they do everything together she's got the ick she's you know ooged out by that and doesn't want to be with this guy anymore and so the quiz show aspect of this of this um episode is only there to set up the continuation of this will they won't they thing that's happening with caroline and her colorist richard because he is with his girlfriend or wife julia now and julia recognizes that caroline is nervous about this going to do this quiz show and has stage fright and says to her hey that music that you had richard bring over at three o'clock in the morning 
that music that helps you stay calm, um, why don't you put it in a little Walkman and tuck, run a run an earpiece up through your blouse and and put it in your ear and fix your hair over it and they'll never know. And she was like, well, I can't wear an earpiece. I'm going on a quiz show. They'll think I'm cheating. And she was like, no, no, no. No one will check. Just put your hair over this it. This is the worst idea ever. Right. Like this, remember in Blackish when the little girl said, this plan comes pre-failed or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just so stupid. It's so stupid. And you're wondering when you're watching it, you're like, the, you know, it is a little kooky and and, and tropey, the storyline with Annie. And so you're like, okay, whatever. But it, it doesn't, it, it it just seems to be a contrivance. Yeah, just to be clear, if you're, time. if you're listening to this and we, we said it pretty fast, she's wearing a Walkman or Discman with a, a earbud, basically, in her ear, like a wired earbud for all to see. And there's and when she says that's going to look sketchy, it's a trivia game show thing, they say... Fix your hair over it yeah. and it'll be fine. And look, it, it's Julia that's doing this. Julia is, you know, the bad guy in quotes because she's the girlfriend or wife of this Richard guy who there's this whole will they won't they thing happening between Caroline and him. So she goes to the the quiz show. She thanks Julia for the suggestion because it really is helping. She puts the little earpiece in. Her hair is short. She's got one of these very short, like mom style yeah. haircuts. So she can't fix her hair over it. And then the minute the game, like just before the game show starts, Julia goes up to the host, Seth Radetzky's dad, and says, hey, that contestant is wearing an earpiece. Yeah, which I appreciated. It, it, diffuses the idiocy of that plot turn when right. she gets caught immediately and it's not a big deal the guy he almost like sort of roasts her he just goes like you're competing for cookies or whatever the, the triscuits yeah whatever the prize for the game show is so they do think she's cheating but they also don't really care they're just like come on what are you doing yeah and, what are you doing take that out you don't need that and she as predicted you know kind of freezes at first, um, and then is able to push through? Well, yes. This is another case similar to Honeymooners where the crucial trivia question is going to be a callback. Oh, so, that's right. This whole episode was just a ploy to say bitch on TV. Yeah. Now, we forgot to establish this is the 90s. I guess I, I was surprised to learn it was NBC, not Fox, based on how this joke goes. But there's a point earlier in the episode where uh, bitch is the answer She's to practicing, a question. Yes. And they're talking about what's the name of the Old West lamp that used this type of fat and this type of oil and it's or something? just an excuse to say bitch because yeah. that's somehow the answer. And It's uh, called a bitch lamp. Yeah. And they, you know, gets a big laugh when she's practicing. And then the same question is the first question when she's on the, sh the right. quiz show. So that sort of breaks the ice. And once she gets that right, you know, because she thinks back to her experience. And learning she stares down at Julia. Like, mm -hmm. like she knows what's ha happened. She looks right at Julia and she goes, bitch. And that was like the whole crux of this episode is so that the two of them can have a little cat fight. One can get called a bitch, but we can't actually call somebody a bitch on TV. So we have to come up with this inane question and use that as the way that our main character gets to get a dig in on the, you know, the foil, the bad guy girlfriend. But yeah, like you said, the 
game show aspect is not totally the focus of the episode. It's still pretty important. But yeah, we get a reversal of the pride goeth before a fall story. And we get more of a, no, you can overcome your childhood trauma and rise above it kind of story. As long as you have another woman that you are fighting with. Yeah. All right, we ready to move on to Spin City? Let's go to Spin City. Season four, episode eight, How to Bury a Millionaire. Yeah, so were you a Spin City person at the time that it aired? I feel like this was during that dark period when I wasn't watching that much TV. I feel like I've seen a few episodes of this. I I concur. I think this was during the dark time where I also wasn't watching much TV. This episode, I think, was in 1999. This is the last season we get with Michael J. Fox. His Parkinson's is noticeable in this episode. They had added, in the beginning of this season, season four, they added Heather Locklear to the cast um, as a like a counterpoint to Michael J. Fox's character. In Spin City, Michael J. Fox is the chief of staff to the mayor of New York, played by Barry Bostick, and Heather Locklear is brought on as the communications director. And the reason for this hiring was to lessen the load on Michael J. Fox um, throughout this season, and at the end end of this season he leaves because his Parkinson's was getting so bad and was replaced with uh, Charlie Sheen. Another fun fact about this show is that the reason this is the second television show of this era that was created because of the movie The American President. Michael J. Fox played uh, a staffer to Michael Douglas in The American President or An American President or whatever. And both the West Wing and Spin City were created because the characters that they played in that movie were so good, they wanted to kind of center shows around Michael J. Fox and Martin Sheen. Yeah, it's a similar premise to Veep, which we talked about last week. Oh, I would love to watch these in like comparison with each other. Yeah, you're seeing the behind the scenes goings on. If you get a handful of these staffers of a major politician and the chaos that happens behind the scenes and it is a it's a very 90s idea this idea of spin right spin city we still have that of course but now we've just embraced there's so much outright lying yeah everything is spin this was in a time where it was like you had your spin room and you knew your spin when you were doctor yeah and your spin team and so you knew when things were oh let's see how we can spin this now that's just there is no everyone is a spin doctor right. everyone is lying or, exactly. and spinning all the time right you could argue there's no spinning anymore there's denial you know <laughs> right. there's there's just outright uh falsehoods but anyway yeah it's like veep in its premise but i would say a less specific voice comedically it's a little bit more of just a sitcom about some wacky characters behind the scenes in a mayor's office. I think it right. doesn't quite have that specific misanthropic charm or specific attitude that Veep has. It doesn't have the specific attitude that Veep has, but it does have its own kind of charm in that way. Like, think of any office 
sitcom pre The Office, right? Think of the Drew Carey show or Less Than Perfect or what's the one with um, David Spade? Uh, any, Just shoot me. Yeah, any of these that take place in an office and WKRP in Cincinnati, right? You've got all of the different people that have different functions in the office. We have Connie Britton playing the accountant, like the main accountant for the mayor, for the city. We've got Richard Kind in some role in the mayor's office, who's hilarious. This cast is very interesting. Like it's every one of these people, none of them are like, oh my God, that person's such a huge star. How did they possibly get them? But every one of them makes you go like, huh, okay. Like they're, they're just all interesting, unexpected choices. Barry Bostwick, right? The guy from Rocky Horror Picture Show is just not who I would expect to show up as the mayor, you know? Right, and you got Cameron from... Alan Ruck from, yeah, from Ferris Bueller originally, and now he's in succession. And it's oh, funny right. to see this as like the exact midpoint between those two, those two. characters. Because he is, he's he is, of all of the like spin doctory people that are in, you know, that work in this office, he's the one that is always talking out of both sides of his face. So in this episode, any, well, so throughout the series, anytime Michael J. Fox needs some dirty work done, Alan Ruck does it. Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's the guy that they go to. He's got no soul. He's the, you know, black hole of (laughs) where soulless things happen. So in this episode, uh, they are having an argument with the firefighters union and the firefighters are going to go on strike. And at the same time, the firefighters are rescuing a little boy from a well. And then Michael J. Fox's character thinks it's a good idea to take the mayor, as you said, played by Barry Bostwick, who he plays the mayor as like this sort of fumbling, you know, dunderhead. He is, he's like, oh yeah, okay, hey people, hey. Can I ask you, is this another one like Veep where we never get into what party he is and any of the specific politics? And in fact, they do an even better job than Veep because he is passing throughout the series both liberal and conservative legislation. Like he's sponsoring bills and getting things passed from both sides. They take him to the site of this well And that was interesting to me from the point of view of, like I keep talking about, this sort of live in front of a studio audience versus shot on location thing. You know, we've noticed how they used to go out into the neighborhood all the time in the 50s and 60s and shoot these things like movies. And then that was sort of phased out. And you get a lot of just, you know, like the How I Met Your Mother, the fake little city street that's obviously a soundstage. This is one that was very clearly, at times in these certain scenes, shot on location in New York City, you know, on Roosevelt Island or wherever they are. I assume that they did the thing like they did in Seinfeld once in a while or even back in Leave it to Beaver, where when they had to, they would go out and shoot these things like a movie and then just screen them for a studio audience to get that laughter and stuff. The laugh, yeah. And this was shot 
in New York City. So even though it was mostly in a studio, it was a studio in the New York area, they moved the production out to L.A. at the end of this season when Charlie Sheen took over for Michael J. Fox. So we've talked about this cast. Let's just pause for a second on Michael J. Fox. You mentioned briefly that you can see the Parkinson's happening. Uh, So he is obviously sitcom royalty, right? We love him from Family Ties. We haven't gotten to cover that yet. We will, you know, one of these days. And what I'm sure I will say when we do talk about that is he has this amazing ability to be likable and fun basically regardless of what he's saying, which is so crucial in these 80s and 90s sitcoms where everyone is being an asshole and saying mean things all the time. He is able to be constantly cutting down his sisters and parents and family ties. And yet he just, you get the spirit with which it's intended and that he's a nice guy. And when he's exasperated, it's funny. And when he's being cocky and overconfident, it's funny. He's so charismatic. You absolutely understand why when they were having trouble filming Back to the Future, they were like, we need to stop our production and figure out a way to get this kid who is actively shooting a sitcom 18 hours a day to somehow be the star of this movie because no one else can do that. You get everything about that with him, which is why it's so painful for me to say in this episode, I see elements of that. But honestly, what I see mostly is a sick man who isn't really in control anymore of his voice and his body. And it sucks. It's really horrible to see. Well, and this you know, he had made the announcement that he was going to do this season and that they were going to lighten the load by bringing in this other, you know, heavy hitter and Heather Locklear. And at the end of the season, he leaves. Like, I think it was one of those things where it, it had gotten bad enough that he had to go public with it. And he was thinking that he was going to be able to still be more active in Uh, like have more mastery over the physicality of his own body in the way that an actor needs to for longer than he was. And so we're just a little bit into the season. And I think you're seeing that toll, right? Like that it is a challenge as a, like as an actor, you have to have a physically every movement that you make on camera matters because you're doing it on purpose. Your body is your instrument. And if you can't control different movements, then the best thing you can do is kind of try to turn it into something that you do with your body, which he had been doing for a while. Like when we watched an episode of Spin City a few months ago, just for fun, and it was like the first season of Spin City, you notice that he would like kind of, it was almost like he was twitching, but he made it as like part of his character where, you know, if his shoulders or his head would kind of move involuntarily, he would just kind of flow with it. Like he was using that charisma that you're talking about to where he would kind of make a joke about somebody not really mean, but just, you know, cutting enough and sort of, sort of do this thing that almost looked like he was felt bad or humbled by saying the mean thing in the first place. And so he has been incorporating those um, extra movements into his acting for a long time. So while, yes, the Parkinson's is noticeable in this episode, I was able to kind of shut that out and see it for what it was, which is him being hilarious and 
able to keep up with all of his co-stars. This episode mostly centers around Richard Kind getting ready to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and trying to like shore up everybody who's going to be his phone a friend for the different whatever topic might come up. He's got like seven different people within the office that he's like, okay, this is going to be who I'm going to call in case of, you know, a math or a math question or this question. Michael J. Fox says, I can be your phone a friend for the, you know. Yeah, Stanley Cup MVP is between the years 1964 and 1964. And 1964, exactly, which happens to be the question. So then the other part of this episode, though, is the, um, the mayor goes out to where the kid was being rescued from the well, but gets there late. And then he himself falls in the well. (laughs) <laughs> it's very funny. It's just a funny sight gag of a wide shot of him walking and Whoop! falling into a well. Yeah. And so this one, even more so than the Caroline in the City episode, the game show really is a B or C story, I would yes. argue. This it was not the focus. Richard Kind is going around the office, like you said, sort of assigning everybody a different area of expertise for the phone a friend thing, which... In case you don't remember, this was the time when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was all over the TV. Everyone loved that show, and that was one of the fun little trademarks of that show. Right. So there were three lifelines that you got if you were trying, if you got stuck when you were answering questions. And similarly to the first game show that we did, which was the $99,000 answer, this, you start out at, you know, there's like 15 stages and every stage is a certain dollar amount and at certain stages you can bank and save all that money below that that you've won so far um or if you you know if you're in between stages where you can bank then you drop back down to the last like stage where you could bank or whatever and so richard kind makes it all the way to the million dollar question. The lifelines, he's used all of them so far. There's a 50-50, meaning they'll eliminate half the answers. There's a poll the audience. And then there's a phone a friend. So he's on the last question. And in the meanwhile, the uh, we've gone back and forth with the firefighters union. And they are out there now trying to rescue the mayor. And Heather Lockler and Michael J. Fox are trying to figure out if this is a good thing or a bad thing that the dim-witted mayor fell in a well. That's been the main crux, the sort of political satire, if you want to call it, of this episode is like, oh, let's not rescue him right away because we'll get better ratings or Or how can we spin it? Right, because at first they were like, let's keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone. We got to get him out of this well because he's going to look like an idiot. And then he looked like oh, you know, he was getting all of this good press that, oh, the hero mayor is stuck in a well. And he's going to you know, save a dog. Well, they didn't, that was at the very, very end, right? So they, he's getting all this good press. They're like, oh, let's stretch it out a little bit and have him rescued during the like six o'clock news or five o'clock news or something. So they're like, oh, we'll see if we can contrive to keep him down there for another couple hours. So at this point in the show, though, we're in the last act. The firefighters are out there. They're in the process of rescuing him. It is the you know prime time you know six o'clock news or whatever all of the news vans are out there and someone asks the question some reporter asks the question 
why did he go down there in the first place? And all of a sudden, they realize, oh my God, he's going to get brought up and everyone is going to know that he didn't go down there for any reason. He just fell. So this is bad again. It's not good publicity. We have to come up with a reason for this to have happened. And one of the other staffers, like the C storyline, is this other staffer has this ancient pug-looking mutt dog that has been at doggy daycare or has been at the office, but then is at doggy daycare, is humping everybody at doggy daycare, all the uh, other dogs. And so he's going to, he's picked this dog up from doggy daycare. The dog's name is Rags, features in many episodes of the show, is voiced over the length of the series by Tim Allen, by um, like two or three other famous actors. We loved in the 90s, Pugs, Chihuahuas, we loved Between the Taco Bell thing, Men in Black, we loved... This dog looks like the Men in Black dog. Yeah, they're they're just, we could not as a society get enough of little weird looking dogs. (laughs) So they, they convince this staffer to give them the dog and create some type of diversion. This other staffer streaks through all the reporters, so everybody looks away for a second and Michael J. Fox chucks the dog down into the well. So now we have a reason for the mayor to have gone down in the well. He comes up a hero holding the dog that he has, quote unquote, rescued. Right. And meanwhile, Richard Kind chooses this moment to phone a friend. So he's calling Michael J. Fox amidst the chaos. And we get for the third time the device of the trivia question being a callback, right? The fun joke of, oh, something that we heard but didn't think much of earlier in the show gets called back. In this case, Michael J. Fox's character was being funny by saying my area of expertise is Stanley Cup MVPs from this one year. That turns out to be the question. And basically the joke is that Richard Kind can get him on the phone, but only for a second. And he says like, "Eh, I gotta go. And he sort of leaves him hanging. So he can't answer the question. He's struggling. He goes back and forth. He's like, oh, and we have this wonderful comedy bit, Richard Kind being being Richard Kind. Yeah. Just uh, talk about Nebishi, right? He's like, oh, no, Regis, it's this. No, it's that. No, not my final answer. Yes. No. He's, <laughs> he's got this specific variation on the Jewish, nervous, but still sort of nervy kind of guy. He's just very funny. And he, one of the characteristics that you'll see him do in most everything is he has like a nervous breakdown where he yells at somebody kind of just like this and he goes off and he makes a really good point, but then he sounds really crazy. Yeah, he's <laughs> almost like the the... Sesame Street character that would always be in the restaurant that Grover would be waiting on and he would get exasperated because there'd be a fly in his soup or something. He has <laughs> that kind of energy. Yes, he does. But yeah, this got me thinking, this is something I think we're going to see a lot when we eventually do the Jeopardy episodes. These game show crossovers are a good way to get this this show that you've seen a lot with real people, because at this time, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, everyone's seen it, the real version, 
you get the comedy of having this fictional character, this over-the-top creation, be placed in that same situation and right. have all the same accoutrements and seeing him on that same game show set with the same camera angles and music and everything that we've all come to love. But instead of it being Sal the plumber from down the street, it's this Richard Kind character behaving in a sitcom way instead of a normal guy. Right. And you get Regis Philbin, who loves to show up as himself in everything. Yes. And he was the host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And so the they have a funny bit when he first phones a friend uh, and calls Michael J. Fox. The way of the show, Regis would be the one who would who would speak when you phoned mm-hmm. a friend and he would, he was like, hi, this is Regis Phil- Philbin from who wants to be a millionaire. And Michael J. Fox like immediately interrupts him. And he's like, yeah, Regis, we can't name, we can't rename seventh Avenue Regis Philbin way. Like it's not going to happen. Yeah. And, and Regis is like, uh, no, not what I'm calling about. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. You're here with your friend. So-and-so Paul. And he's, <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. It's also making me realize that we should, add to the trope list Regis Philbin appearances because he's in everything as himself yeah yes he's another one like Casey Kasem and uh, Mickey Dolenz from the monkeys Mm -hmm. Uh, some of these guys just really loved showing up on sitcoms but anyway Philbin is doing the thing of like I'm sorry to say yeah that you are right there for me to deliver the answer and like he keeps going back and forth and then he says which we'll hear after the break which was like a trope from yeah. who wants to be a millionaire so they go to break he's like damn it Regis stop you know stop jerking me around you gotta give me don't make me wait anymore and then they come back from break and he has it right and he's like freaking out okay I honestly didn't remember how how it turned out <laughs> um, he wins But anyway, yeah, looking back on all these shows, like I said, they all have in common, even though some of them might be a case of the character being cocky and getting comeuppance. Some of them might be the reverse, the sort of underdog thing. But it's always a way to put an adult character in this sort of extreme pressure situation. And yeah, I think it's it's just very sort of straightforward why they do this again and again. We all, when you watch game shows, we all have that reaction of like, oh boy, I don't, I don't know if I could do that, you know? Yeah, well, and uh, you know, the thing with game shows, every time I watch them, I'm like, you know that they are, they purposefully pick people who take the wrong risks because that's what makes for good television. And so similarly in Ralph Cramden and uh, Paul, the Richard Kind character in Spin City, you get these same types of people who will purposefully take the wrong, like, you know, take the wrong risks and just keep pushing. And, you know, Ralph obviously had his comeuppance and lost. And then Richard Kind, he takes it all. But we get to watch those characters that we, you know, love in the same situations that we see real people in and do a bit with that. So, yeah, I think the Honeymooners was super interesting as sort of an artifact, you know, just when you go back that far for all the reasons we said, it's just kind of fascinating to watch the way TV shows were at that time. And then, yeah, on the other side, you know, I I don't think any of these were like 
you know, I'm on the floor laughing throughout the whole show. But Spin City, again, that cast is just so interesting just to sit there and watch in any given scene i'm watching like richard kind interact with barry bostwick and michael j fox or you know whatever combo it is it's it's always fun you know yeah and i think of all of the episodes that we watched you know mr belvedere was a letdown but i again i i i think the show itself is tropey and the show itself is that everything you said about 80s comedies but i do remember when i was young that there were episodes i did like that show and i and there were episodes that i'm i'm sure were good even in my 12 year old 10 year old mind sure but the the heavy hitter the mvp of this lineup to me was the honeymooners Mm. it it was very clear what they were going for you had I mean, I I laughed so hard when they made the meal out of playing Swanee River three times. I was like, oh, they're setting us up for something. Yeah. I was so excited that I knew something was going to happen with that, that it just made me, I was, I was waiting for it. I was like, oh, I can't wait. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. It's going to be because of Swanee River. Like, and it was, it was so much fun for me because I was in on the joke and maybe I was only in on the joke because so many sitcoms since then have followed that same pattern and they're predictable but that was early on and and that's brilliant and i loved it and it was so much fun to watch jackie gleason is amazing he like he is the basis for so many tv dads like you're crazy if you don't think that Carol O'Connor went back and watched Jackie Gleason do his thing as Ralph Cramden while he was creating Archie Bunker. I would, I dare say John Goodman also was trying, you know, like has, has pieces of this, like this is an original uh, TV husband, you know, all of these at King of Queens, you can think like we have King of Queens because not that we are happy about it, but we had it thanks to Ralph Cramden. I mean, so many of these things. And to think that that show only lasted one season. Yes, it was a sketch for many, many years on many things, but man, just iconic. And it was it was a treat to go back to it and revisit. And if there are young people out there, like you said, who don't really know it. I highly recommend going and watching some Honeymooners. Yeah, totally. All right, so, so much for game show appearances. What are we talking about next week? Next week, our trope is old friends, new trouble. We've got old friends coming into town and showing us some things about our life that we may or may not be ready to deal with uh, and taking us back to a little bit of a nostalgia times in our own minds so our characters will be dealing with that next week when we watch the dick van dyke show season one episode 30 the return of happy spangler roseanne season two episode 16 born to be wild sister sister season four episode seven boy from the hood and scrubs season two episode 22 my dream job yep That's next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded.
Thank you for listening to the Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 